You're listening to Extra Textual. This is a show where we talk about an idea, concept, theme, trend, and relate it to some kind of media like film, TV, video games, books, music, and hopefully discover something about ourselves or our culture along the way. Thanks for listening. So I watched some of the uh, little Vimeo videos that you sent, um, like about the crossing the street shot and the um, like sideways panning in the office shot. Yeah. And, and so one thing I was thinking about was like, are those are those sort of like visual storytelling elements something that this is going to sound fairly crazy, but like if say there were like a whole bunch of planets which develop cinema, like would they all yeah. develop things similar to that because they're like just like effective perennial uh, visual storytelling elements or is there some unique element to them that has to do with being like, you know, that are unique to this iteration of them, like in the United States, you know, is it something that like, you know, in, in cinema in other countries, do they have like a different, you know, like vernacular basis for like talking about the modern in film and stuff? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I, 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 I think I want to say that that type of shot, so say the seriality shot, uh, where the camera is dollying usually laterally along a row of things, just to emphasize that it's a row of things, just like a whole bunch of copies yeah, yeah. of the same thing. Um, I want to say that's an affordance of of the lateral dolly. Like it's it's something that, the lateral dolly can do, uh, and it can do it well. Uh, but it's not the only function that the lateral dolly can do, and it's also not the only technique that could comment on sameness. Uh, so for that reason, given those two options, I'd, I'd probably want to lean more towards, I guess I want to lean towards specificity. I, I mean, I mean, I think yeah. that if were, you know, parallel universes <laughs> and there were a thousand parallel universes, probably a bunch of them have the seriality shot. But I, I, I want to say maybe not all of them would yeah. have it. Um, so when I was when I was uh, writing the book and putting together the video essay, my methodology was I watched a whole lot of movies uh-huh. and then. <laughs> I, I grabbed a bunch of clips. So I grabbed like 5,000 clips wow. uh, from these thousand movies that I watched. And then I went through them and I tagged them on, on the Mac. Uh, uh, and so one of my tags was seriality. Um, so any, any time I had a shot that, that um, seemed to evoke this idea of sameness, um, you know, I would tag seriality. And so I, I, so A, I found a whole bunch in classic Hollywood movies, because that's that's what I was watching. But B, you know, there are also examples in in French movies and Russian movies and and Japanese movies. And, you know, so so you find it in a lot of different traditions. Uh, You find it in contemporary movies as well. Um, You know, one example that comes to mind is uh, Toy Story 2, when when Buzz has to Buzz Lightyear has to confront the fact that he's not the only Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. Um, that in a Toy Story, in a Toy Story, there are, mm-hmm. you know, thousand other yeah. Buzz Lightyears. Um, you know, and that I think is suggesting the idea of seriality in the mm-hmm. same way. 
so it is it is something that's going to pop up in multiple traditions. However, I do still think there's some kind of specificity to it because I think you know, a filmmaker in you know 1933 um, might be thinking about a seriality shot that they saw in a Hollywood movie in 1932, and then and then that filmmaker might be thinking about a shot that they saw in a movie in 1931. So I, I do think there's a kind of tradition there of 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 specific linkages between the motifs um, that is more particular than the generalized affordance that that the shot could be useful for evoking seriality. Gotcha. Hmm. Well, uh, that was a great answer. Um, welcome to the show. This is Eli Steenledge, and with me is... Jeremy Holiday. And we're excited about this episode because we have another great guest joining us mm -hmm. um, to talk about things that uh, Jeremy and I really enjoy. Uh, well, for me especially, uh, I like camera work, so I'm excited about... Um, and a lens flare. He loves lens flare. And lens flare. I do. Natural lens flare. And also, you know, things like film noir and Indeed. classic films. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're excited to have Patrick Keating on the show. He is the professor of communication at Trinity University, um, where he teaches film studies and video production and has written several books, including Hollywood Lighting from the Silent Area to Film Noir and also The Dynamic Frame, Camera Movement in Classical Hollywood, which I believe is the latest book. So welcome to the show, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks. Could you tell us a little bit more about some of your interests and work that you've written about? Yeah, yeah. So uh, before I got my PhD in film history, I got an MFA in film production where I focused on cinematography. And so uh, when I switched over to uh, doing uh, film history, I was encouraged to focus on cinematography because I could bring that practical yeah. eye um, to, uh, to the study of it. Uh, and I've always liked Hollywood films. So, uh, really I became, uh, uh, you know, uh, a scholar of Hollywood cinematography. Uh, I focus mostly on, uh, the classic period. So 1920s, thirties, forties, and a little bit of the fifties. Mm. And the first book was on lighting. And then the second book was on camera movement. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so that is the main thing that I study. And then I've also written a little bit about Italian neorealism um, and a little bit about, you know, a few other kinds of cinema, but mostly I, I work with classic Hollywood. Hmm. Very cool. Uh, just out of personal interest, can, I, can you comment briefly on why, maybe it was practical reasons, if there was any reasons, why you kind of didn't stick with the production side as much, which it sounds like you still teach some production, but like um, personally, do you still do production yourself or interested in that? Um, but also I think it, from what I've read of your work, it does really bring an inside look at things that I usually don't hear in, um, in academics. But um, was there any particular reason for that sort of shift? Yeah, I was even when I was at USC, when I was working on the MFA, mm -hmm. uh, I was I was I was thinking that I missed uh, doing film history. Mm -hmm. And I had a writing partner and we made a thesis film that was very much informed by um, our scholarly interests. Mm -hmm. It was 
it was a combination of a film noir, but also like a Douglas Sirk melodrama. Hmm. Sort of what would happen if you took one of the crazy families from a Douglas Sirk melodrama and threw them in the middle of a mystery plot with a detective and everything. Uh, And we did some fun things. We started the movie with a three-minute shot. Uh, You know, we we changed the color scheme for the melodramatic scenes. They were, I think, green and magenta. (laughs) And then for the noir-ish scenes, we used a sort of much more muted palette. Uh, and, and it, it actually, it's, it's kind of a, a fun movie, but, but you know, completely uncommercial. <laughs> um, and I'm, so my writer ended yeah. up becoming, uh, an English teacher. Uh, <laughs> I became a film professor. Um, you know, so I, I did, I did some photography for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I shot was over 10 years ago. I, I worked on some avant-garde films. Okay. Um, and I don't really miss that, uh, mm-hmm. but lately I have been making video essays, and that's sort of been able to get some of my uh, creative interests yeah. uh, to be aligned with my scholarly interests. Um, Very cool. I did want to comment. Um, uh, I mean, in full disclosure, uh, I, I wasn't your student when you were at the UW, but I, um, uh, I when I took my intro to film course when you were here, uh, Rebecca, and I can't remember her last name, taught it. Um, and uh and she like the way the the class was taught. She would use like your method, which was to essentially make like the whole uh, lecture presentation in Final Cut Pro, and then make uh, like inner titles for the slides. Um, and like the quality of the class was like greatly enhanced because of that. Because like most of the folks were using like PowerPoint presentations that had like video clips in them. But yeah. since like you know you had the method like the method you used was like teaching with like actual films, um, it always meant that like we um, you know it was just it. I can see now um, like how your work as a cinematographer like made your you know the, the teaching that I was able to see better, which was fun. And like when I started teaching, you know. I've taught like some film in high school. Um, I use the same method. Like I, I would make even when I was teaching public speaking here at the university. Like I made like little videos, essentially the same way that you did yours when you were cool. teaching the film class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, now I use Keynote. Uh, oh yeah. But, yeah, and I I prefer Keynote to PowerPoint, but it does. Uh, it, it so it, it's kind of kind of between uh, the two methods. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so now I use Keynote, and then when I'm done with my lectures, I export them as MP4, and then I, oh, cool. I post them online so students oh, yeah. look at the notes afterwards. Yeah, I've seen some professors do that. That's really handy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we wanted to kind of dive into things, and we may kind of jump around, um, but in general, I, I don't know quite how to phrase this, but uh, you talk a lot about sort of um, my impression, the origins of some of the different like camera movements and um, and how were they were used early on in film or how they developed. Um, mm-hmm. Would you be able to say anything generally about maybe how from from your point of view, the like new camera movements were utilized in classical films, like how, filmmakers sort of discovered these techniques and how they were used. Like um, uh, we were talking earlier and there's a lot of like specific purposes for the way the camera moves um, to maybe uh, show things, certain things to the audience or, 
you know, give them a certain feel of things. Like something done in a longer moving shot kind of gives it that immediacy maybe um, that you wouldn't get by cutting where it's it's kind of mm-hmm. disjointed, where it kind of keeps everything together. But um, I don't know if you have any sort of general thoughts on, you know, the way filmmakers sort of developed those techniques. Yeah, so, so my book, uh, The Dynamic Frame, starts in 1924. And, and the reason why I pick 1924 as the starting point is because that's when Hollywood filmmakers first saw F.W. Murnau's uh, German film, uh, The Last Laugh. Hmm. Uh, and it, it used to be said that The Last Laugh invented camera movement, and, and that's not true. There were plenty of films that used camera movement beforehand, mm-hmm. uh, but it used camera movement in this very distinctive way that inspired Hollywood filmmakers, including Murnau when he moved to Hollywood. Um, uh, to experiment much more boldly with the technique. Prior to uh, seeing The Last Laugh, you would find camera movement in a Hollywood film, but most likely it would have been in a slapstick movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are lots of scenes in Buster Keaton movies and Harold Lloyd movies where the character is, you know, on a motorcycle or on the back end of a fire truck. Right. And then the camera is on a car alongside Following along, photographing. Yeah. Him, um, uh, doing this stunt, uh, and and then there were a few other uses of the camera movement, but that was sort of the most prominent one, and it it, it almost had this kind of low status that it was associated with slapstick and wasn't used in drama, and so that was one of the reasons why the last laugh was so striking was because it used it for drama. And it used it to enhance the drama specifically to get us to feel the emotions of the character. Mm. And, and so the, the, the word that I use to describe this, and it's not my word, it's Jean Mitri's word, is semi-subjective. Mm. And uh, so what I mean by that is that the camera is photographing a character so the camera is not looking through the character's eyes. So it's not literally a subjective shot. Mm-hmm. But the way it's photographing the character in some way evokes how the character is feeling. Mm. Uh, and the classic example in The Last Laugh is a scene where uh, the porter, the main character, is drunk. Uh, and, and they get a shot where he appears to be seated and the room appears to be spinning around him. Uh, and basically they put him on like a pedestal that rotated and the camera was also on the pedestal, uh, which, and the pedestal was rotating. So it made it seem like he was stationary and the world was spinning. Um, so there again, it's, it's not literally a point of view shot. We're not looking through his eyes, but it expresses his subjective state of, of drunkenness. Uh, and, and I think that a lot of, uh, many of the most interesting films that I look at um, we'll use a technique in that way, um, evoking a character's emotions uh, through uh, movement. Well, and then there's a whole second family of usages, um, uh, and, and you know, I call them revelation, concealment, emphasis, and understatement. Um, so the camera, by moving, can reveal a fact mm-hmm. that we didn't know before and possibly the character doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Or it can seal a fact that maybe the character does know, but we don't. Uh, or it can emphasize something. So something that we already know, 
but the camera by dollying in can say this is important. And then the fourth one, understatement, is, is sort of for a scene where we might expect there to be emphasis, uh, but maybe the camera doesn't quite move in the way we expect it. Uh, and so it, it actually tries to underplay, uh, maybe de-dramatize uh, the scene a little bit. Um, so that's another family of functions that, that uh, filmmakers used it for. Well, it's interesting. I think about this like idea of semi-subjective, and I think about like one of my favorite shots in in a recent film it, it's in the children of uh, children of men mm-hmm. yeah and, it, and it's like I, it happens midway through there's like an attack going in on yeah and he's like running and he gets to this bus um you know and, and it's a follow shot and there ends up being like some blood splattered on the camera mm-hmm. and i remember yes. watching it and thinking like that's absurd like you know, like the the <laughs> the, the, there, the yeah. blood is on the camera, emphasizing the fact to me that there's a camera there, and yet it does it didn't have that cinematic effect. Like mm-hmm. the effect was like I feel very, very, very much invested in what this character mm-hmm. is doing at this very moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I guess like um, semi like I, I just didn't have the language of semi subjective before this point in my life mm-hmm. to talk about it. But I think um, it really makes a lot of sense, and I can I can really see that in a lot of things. Like because it's not. Um, it is a, a blend of because it's not a point of view shot. Like we're not mm-hmm. we're not we're not identifying with the motion of the camera as our own motion, but where the the person in the shot is shot in a way that helps us, exp, you know, uh, more deeply feel or experience what they're experiencing. Yeah, I think that's right, and 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 that, that I know the shot that you're talking about. Yeah, it's 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 one of those effects that if you pause and think about it, it doesn't. It doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, but on that expressive level, I think it works. It works incredibly well, yeah. um, and, and and it goes back to much older films. Uh, uh, so one of the cinematographers I write about, James Wong Hao, um, when he was photographing uh, fictionalized war films uh, during World War II, such as uh, Air Force, he he like innovated this technique where whenever a bomb would go off, the camera would shake. Uh, um, and it's very similar because it's it's there's not supposed to be a camera in this space, right. um, yeah. so why would it be shaking? Uh, and yet it does have that that semi-subjective effect of of expressing what it feels like to be in that space. That, that's sort of interesting. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any concept of the reaction audiences might have had to some of these unique camera movements when they were first happening. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think, you know, like when I was in film school and watched some of these older films and even, you know, back in junior high when I discovered, you know, Citizen Kane and started watching Orson Welles films, I was so surprised at, you know, his unique camera angles and um, camera movement. I know uh, you talk about um, the opening shot um, of Touch of Evil in your book and things mm-hmm. like that and how amazing it is. But um, do you think a lot of times, you know, s- classical uh, cinematography was meant to be sort of hidden? Um, we talk yeah. a lot of this. So the audience wouldn't really notice, you know, that you are watching a film. It wouldn't draw attention to itself. But like the shot you're talking about, this sort of um, semi subjective, do you think audiences were surprised when they saw that or it did seem very natural to them? Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to draw into that. Yeah. Uh, so I don't study audiences at all directly. I'm, sure. I'm mostly I mostly study filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, 
and and to some extent, I'll look at uh, reviews mm-hmm. uh, um, reacting to films. So so those are two maybe indirect ways of getting at at audience responses. Yeah. Um, and and then there and then there's maybe some archival information about what filmmakers thought. Uh, the audiences were going to going to be responding to. Yeah, uh, I, I I I do sense that uh, in the in the in the early twenties or in the mid twenties when when filmmakers started to experiment with camera movement, um, there was briefly like a a bit of popularity hmm. uh, to these movies that that used it um, boldly. Uh, but very quickly, even as early as 1926, there are magazine articles um, criticizing uh, camera movement as a fad, um, as something that that um, is distracting uh, from the story. So, so it really only had like a year or two of, of popularity um, before people thought that it was a distraction, huh. uh, and and certainly there were there were many filmmakers who. Um, who would criticize uh, the technique? Um, I, I know Daryl Evzanik would try and get the filmmakers who worked for him. He was the head of production at 20th Century Fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would try and get them to use the moving camera less. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen memos written by Zanik uh, saying, you know, audiences don't notice it, so so stop right. wasting my money <laughs> um, with these elaborate dolly shots mm-hmm. because. It's, it's not going to make me any more money if you do it. Uh, however, it's significant that he kept having to write this memo. The filmmakers clearly did find it valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, and, I, and I think they would have argued that even if audiences don't notice it, um, it's still helping to tell the story. And so it's, it's still going to be worth pursuing. Because well, I mean, you talk about. Um, I mean, I admit I haven't read all of the dynamic frame, but you talk about like um, uh, you know, like filmmaking as a as a as an art of revealing. Um, and one mm-hmm. of the things that I think about, like I when I was a uh, graduate student, I took like a, a couple classes on like city architecture. You know, like um, you know, it was particularly like, some cities in Europe and some cities in Asia. But um, you know, like a, a lot of the cities were organized so that you know uh, the when great buildings were made or great promenades were made they, they were designed to sort of um carry a person through the space like mm-hmm. you know, like you know classic examples in you know in um in Athens like as you move in this classical progression that was done during certain rituals you encounter progressive things and you, you eventually get close to the heart of the city so the way that it's revealed um and it's interesting to see like times when um, like the, you know, I mean, when the, then the camera moves, and as it moves through space, it also reveals progressively more information about it. You know, not just, you know, like as if we move closer to to finding what's going on in there, which is interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, and I was I was particularly interested in in scenes where the camera will reveal something uh, often uh, that a character hasn't noticed yeah uh because when we think of uh hollywood films um yeah i i I think there are many films where the camera is is encouraging you to um identify with a particular character and so its movements tend to 
track pretty closely with what a character does. Uh, and in fact, there are some scholars who, who say that one of the key rules of Hollywood cinema um, is that when you move the camera, you should always follow a character's movement. Mm. Uh, uh, and that's both uh, to keep a character centered, but also to keep the movement invisible. Uh, and I found in my research that there are actually plenty of times when the camera moves not to follow a character's movement. And probably the most common case is when it's revealing what a character doesn't know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and it's almost like those are, those are cases where they do want you to notice the camera movement um, precisely so you'll be thinking, ah, okay, they're showing me what this person isn't actually seeing. You know, mm -hmm. I'm getting this, this privileged piece of information, this, this, this key fact that they don't have. I'm trying to think uh, uh, of an example. Uh, I, I think I don't even mention this example in the book. I, I saw it again recently. It's from the 1939 version of Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Mm -hmm. uh, and as I recall what the shot is, um, so, so Mr. Chips has just met and fallen in love with the Greer Garson character. Um, but, but um, you know, they're, they're not a couple yet. Uh, they've really just kind of met. Uh, and then I think the shot is on a boat and it's on Mr. Chips and he's thinking fondly of the Greer Garson character. And then the camera dollies away from him all the way down the boat mm. to locate the Greer Garson character. And she's thinking of him. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, you would call it an unmotivated camera movement, unmotivated in the sense that it's not following any character's movement. Mm. But of course, it's highly motivated uh, because it's giving us privileged information, which is that both of these characters are in love with each other, even though they don't know that they're in love with each other. Um, from studying all this and like looking at some of those original intentions in camera movement, how mm -hmm. do you feel about sort of modern films that it's become so common, you know, whether we think from like music videos in the 90s, um, you know, with lots of cutting, lots of movement, um, let's say Michael Bay, which I don't mm -hmm. think that we necessarily have to defend as a great filmmaker, but... That's... No, I, I will defend The Rock as a great film. The, the Rock, Rock is a great film. It's pretty great. I agree. Yeah. Um, that he's sort of almost constantly moving the camera. And I mm -hmm. think even when I taught uh, film that, you know, I would use that concept of, uh, Jeremy just brought it up that Orson Welles talked about, that camera movement should always have a purpose, you know. And I would tell my students that, like, you know, don't move the camera unless you have a reason to do it. Um, you know, don't just try to be cool because um, you're moving the camera to look awesome. Um, but do you think that is overused these days, that um, it's not used with intentionality for the most part in kind of mainstream films? Yeah, I think I... I, I like camera movement, so I... <laughs> <laughs> you don't mind it too much? Yeah. The more, the better. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, certainly... Um, uh, uh, Certainly Michael Bay would be an example of someone who can sometimes <laughs> use it excessively. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, I think this week, actually, in my international cinema class, uh, I'm going to be talking about um, 
Hong Kong action movies mm. uh, from the 80s and 90s. And I'll be I'll be praising how they stage their action scenes. And just to make a comparison, I'll be presenting Michael Bay as mm. like, here's the bad it's example. Bad. And I'll probably be over exaggerating because, as I say, I, I, I do like some of his like, films. Yeah. So um, like John Woo, but, you'll be talking about and people. Yeah, like that. I got John yeah. Woo. I have an example from a, a Johnny Doe film, hmm. uh, Mission. Um, there's there's an amazing action scene. It's in, I think it's kind of like in a mall, like late at night, just sort of an abandoned mall mm. uh, staged around these um, these two escalators. Um, and it's just an amazing scene. Um, and there's very little camera movement. And what camera movement there is, is incredibly purposeful. Mm. Uh, and then Michael Bay, uh, you know, just, just to add some energy, likes to just shake the camera up and down. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, even even during a car chase, uh, you, you know, like sometimes the cars won't even be moving, uh, but he'll create the impression that they're moving just because the camera is like zooming in, zooming out, and it's and it's bumping up and down hmm. the whole time. Uh, uh, yeah, so 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 there are there are some action films that I think overdo uh, camera movement, um, particularly I think handheld camera movement. Uh, you know, I, mm-hmm. and I'm an admirer of Christopher Nolan films, mm-hmm. but not an admirer of his action scenes, mm. uh, which often seem to be staged kind of clunkily. Yeah. Um, and there's just a lot of bumpy camera movement, which gives you the impression of, of movement, mm. um, impression of action. Another genre that I, I think suffers nowadays is the musical. Like you mentioned mm. the music video, um, and and I remember, I remember when I watched Glee, and I, I liked Glee a lot, uh, and I liked a lot of the singing. I, th- I thought a lot of it was great, but then the dancing, it would just be all cut up. All cut, yeah. Uh, most of the cast members, I don't think, were professional dancers, but a couple mm. of them were. Um, but even the ones who were good dancers, you couldn't really appreciate mm. them uh, because there was too much editing and too much camera movement. Um, and then if you compare that to a Fred Astaire number mm-hmm. or a Gene Kelly number where the dance unfolds in a long take and the camera is moving, but moving modestly to follow uh, the dancer's movements. I, I just find that so much more satisfying than the dance numbers in Glee and any any number of other contemporary Hollywood musicals. Yeah, I would say that's one thing. I'm generally not a musical fan, but uh, I think La La Land was, of course, looking back to lots of classical aspects of musicals, but, you know, like the opening long take um, that we see on the freeway and then um, even the use of, you know, sort of the whip pans to kind of keep the scene together um, Mm -hmm. to give that feeling that this is all happening at once. Um, yeah. between the music and the dancing and everything. I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And the dance with uh, uh, the, the, the dance at night, mm. outside at night, um, yeah. that seemed like it was consciously trying to call up um, like dances from uh, like the bandwagon and so forth. Mm. Though, I, 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 just going back to the question of like contemporary filmmakers using camera movement, mm-hmm. um, there are also, of course, people who use it incredibly well. Yeah. Uh, and you've already brought up Alfonso Cuaron, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, and, and he's certainly moving the camera 
a lot, uh, but but everything seems to be um, uh, very purposeful. Very purposeful. Uh, and I'm thinking of Children of Men, of course. Yeah. Gravity. Um, uh, Roma is quite different. Um, it's it has it has more understated camera movement, but some some uh, still some very impressive mm-hmm. camera work. Um, and and I'm also a fan of of his Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is. Uh, doing a lot of interesting things with with uh, camera movement, especially like virtual camera movement in that movie. Yeah, there's some pretty long takes um, that that tie different details together to definitely tell the audience what's going on there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've always really enjoyed camera movement as well, and and I was trying to think of this connection to because, like you said, I think even films that don't always have like the strongest purpose, I still sort of enjoy the um, dynamicness from your your book of camera movement in general. But I I really appreciate filmmakers who sort of look back in sort of a classical sense to do it. Um, People like Scorsese or Mm. Park Chan-wook, Denis uh, Villeneuve, and, and I'm a fan of M. Night Shyamalan, actually, I think. At I least his, t- his early films, he was very intentional about how he used this camera. I think he got sloppier um, yeah. in the middle of his career about how he did that. But, you know, I like, for example, let's say Scorsese, and I think Spike Lee kind of used this. And, and I wonder if this is kind of like the um, semi-subjective point of view of mm-hmm. like how they do... Um, you know, the quick sort of push in on characters or pulling away or Spike Lee does the sort of floating characters, you know, yeah, um, yeah. going towards them. And I think that does sort of put you in the head of the person, not necessarily um, completely subjective of what they're seeing, but, you know, what they're experiencing. And I think those things take me out enough to make me sit up and say, oh, there's something going on here, um, but doesn't take me out enough that I'm not connected to to those characters and what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Spike Lee has certainly turned that shot into a directorial signature. Right. Uh, right. I think for the pleasure of watching a Spike Lee film is, is waiting for the Spike for Lee shot. Moment. Yeah. Uh, which I think of as that shot where, um, where the camera seems attached uh, to the figure's body. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even as they're, Walking in space, it looks more like they're floating in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually do think it uh, that uh, goes back quite self-consciously to the the semi-subjective shot from the last laugh. I, mm-hmm. I think that's that's um, the beginning, really the, the initial example of that technique. Uh, and then and then occasionally you see something like that in. Um, in films from the 60s, there's there's Czechoslovakian film uh, called uh, The Shop on Main Street, which has a version of that shot. Hmm. Um, John Frankenheimer's Seconds has a version of that shot. Uh, I think Mean Streets by Scorsese has a version of that shot mm-hmm. where the camera seems attached to the person's body. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and, and, and then Spike Lee kind of really claims that and makes that his signature mm-hmm. um, uh, to, to the point that you're thinking, like when is he going to use it? Like, mm-hmm. like what's what's the right context in this story for that shot to appear? And it often can be very satisfying uh, to yeah. watch it. Ah, there it is. There's the Spike Lee shot, and that seems like this this crucial turning point uh, uh, in in the story. Um, 
and and like in in Black Klansmen, um, mm. it, it appears uh, right at the very end as right. they kind of flip down the hallway. Um, uh, yeah, so 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 he's used that as a signature in a way that I think the overhead angle had become a Hitchcockian signature. Yeah, and Scorsese had like the triple cut as his signature, mm. where the camera was farther out, cut in, cut in, uh, and with Spike Lee, it's that attached camera movement shot. Mm. I was just going to make the point that um, noticing, and this is something I loved about, you know, going through film school is all the like amazing discoveries from film history Yeah, that uh, like the videos that you suggest we watch, which we can link to in the notes yeah. um, on Vimeo, but these clips of the moving camera from these early films, I mean, just watching them lately, I'm, I'm just blown away that they seem so sort of modern. Um, mm-hmm. In, in their usage and to think that those things happen so early on, I think people will be really surprised about how modern they feel. Um, I know this is a little bit later, but you know, something like uh, Breathless for me from Godard blew my mm. mind in film school. Cause I was like, <laughs> they were doing this in the fifties, this kind of all this crazy yeah. wacky stuff um, mm-hmm. and, and knew what it was sort of accomplishing. Um, that just kind of opened up a whole new world for me. When yeah. I was in film school. Yeah. Yeah. For me, where the, the dynamic frame, I can tell you the shot that that led me to write the whole book. Hmm. Um, and it was the shot from the Mary Pickford film, My Best Girl, 1927, where she is walking across the street um, with Buddy Rogers. And they're so in love uh, that hmm. they don't notice that the traffic is driving in front of them and hmm. driving them as they walk across the street and I, I i i recognized it as being a motif from sunrise uh but i also recognized that it wasn't just copying mm. the shot uh, it's like they were taking it and recontextualizing the shot and giving it new meaning mm. whereas in in sunrise the city is initially very threatening uh uh, and then eventually it's negotiable, but still not really a place where you can live um, for these characters. Uh, in in My Best Girl, it, it feels like this perfectly balanced machine um, where they just seem, you know, almost divinely protected right. as walking through space. Uh, and, and, and that was really the kernel that, that the whole book uh, grew out of. Um, and you know, it's, it's a, it's a Mary Pickford comedy, <laughs> 1927. And it has this, this, um, I, I think really, really, uh, uh, smart usage of moving camera. So, um, we were talking a little bit, um, before the show and you had said, um, that you were possibly going to be giving a lecture on Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, which is a film that uh, we uh, did a show about. I mean, I, I, I really can't stop um, talking about mm. how much I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I also, I mean, I don't know if you listen to the show, but I also have spent a lot of time talking about how much I couldn't stand Infinity War, and I didn't have <laughs> a lot of hopes for that IP. I think they had milked it so much that there was no more water left in that rock. Um, and then, like, from the, I mean, like, three seconds into the Spider-Verse, mm. I was, you know, I, like, they had me for life essentially, and I, and I and I and I almost couldn't believe 
that um, that that stu- you know like different studio, but that IP was going to produce something as fantastic mm. as that. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like what you intend to lecture on about it. Yeah, that one. That's that's a tough one. I, I, ha- I haven't really I haven't really figured it out yet. It's, it was just kind of an initial uh, inkling. Uh, um, or, or just tell me what you like about it. Yeah, I, I, I just was I, I just thought it was inventive from the first second uh, to yeah. the last. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I found myself engaged with the characters and uh, but also. Um, it, it, it was it was rich is what yeah. I liked about it. it. It was like I think the story was rich. There were like multiple characters with multiple arcs, uh, and I wasn't quite sure how it was going to resolve itself. Um, so I thought that was rich. And then visually, it was it was extraordinarily uh, rich. Um, you know, I it, it it just seemed totally packed with ideas yeah. uh, and 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 you mentioned that that you know the ip seems like it had exhausted itself yeah. um but yeah that that movie just seemed to completely uh refresh it um what what i what i if if i may uh, i i do want to go back to uh, you mentioning um m night Shyamalan. oh of <laughs> yeah. course please I can probably say smarter things about M. Night Shyamalan than I can about uh, Spider-Man just yet. Um, but I totally agree. I actually think M. Night Shyamalan is a really talented filmmaker yeah. who is admittedly an up-and-down filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think his first several films are extraordinarily strong mm-hmm. and especially strong visually. Yep. Uh, he uses the long take. Yeah. He uses, you know camera movements but not like crazy touch of evil camera movements mm-hmm. you know just a simple pan sometimes we'll get yeah. it done just a simple crane down we'll get it done uh so I, I yeah i think between the sixth sense and unbreakable and i even like signs uh, um uh, i think there's some extraordinary we, we disagree on that but i'm a big fan of signs too i mean yeah me yeah, yeah. I, I mean i mean i'm totally with you in i mean the sixth sense blew my mind um and unbreakable is still pretty much like one of my favorite um comic book films of all mm-hmm. time you know and it yeah. was when it came out it was you know even though there's the you know like superhero movies are exploding um but i mean they just i mean uh some of the like i i science was a bit too much for me to take the glasses of water was just a little <laughs> too much um but it you know there was no doubt i mean he just seemed like a, a someone with just buckets of skill that mm. just got a little George Lucasy or something, you know? Because, um, I mean, I remember, I mean, I think I saw, like, Unbreakable twice in the theater. It was like mm. I saw it with my friends and, you know, one group of friends I saw it with mm-hmm. another group of friends. I just, I, I, it was like I kind of couldn't believe someone had just made something that good. I mean, the story was tight. It was fantastically mm. um, visual. There was no, you know, there was no, um, there was like, you can't throw anything away. You know I mean? I think right. that's the way he makes his films. Like every single piece of story and mm-hmm. visual element is, has meaning and is worthwhile in the overall story. Yeah. He's like Hitchcock in that way, I think in those early films. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I also like the village. Um, I do too. I'm with him it, up through the village. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what he, and you bring up the Hitchcock, uh, you know, cause Hitchcock wants to scare you just like with a shower. And then there's a moment in the village where Shyamalan scares you with red flowers. 
Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's yeah. just so amazing that he can take the most innocuous mm. image and by putting it in the right context, it's absolutely terrifying. Uh, and it's got Roger Deakins photography. So it's, mm. it's a gorgeous it film. Good, yeah. And then he went into his prolonged slump. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, uh, the following has a few really good shots in it, but but is also his t- touch for acting completely abandoned him. Uh, um, yeah. I think The Last Airbender is a disaster. Uh, but he's he's on his way back. Uh, yeah, we like rewatched it, yeah. Uh, uh, Unbreakable, and and we were really impressed with it. Um, and. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, split, it, it's a little trashier than I prefer, um, mm-hmm. but it clearly, you can see some of his talent and I actually totally against the critics. I think glass is great. Hmm. We, we haven't quite caught up with it yet. We, yeah. We, 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 we watched split to. together. Yeah. Um, but yeah. we haven't yet seen glass Yeah, and I glass was better than split. I, I was pleasantly, I mean, I, like, again, like, I've been off the bandwagon since signs. I, you know, the, the signs <laughs> and the thing, the water laid, I don't know. Um, uh, but when I saw Split, I, uh, I mean, I was just taken with it a little bit. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it had, it was grounded in both like appropriate psychology for that situation. And, mm-hmm. um, Mr. McAvoy's acting was just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he was like, it was like a yeah. captivating one man show. I mean, it could have mm-hmm. been him in a box essentially. And I would have watched <laughs> the entire thing. Um, mm-hmm. but it it just went back to, I mean, it seemed very classic, you know I mean? Like. Yeah. Nothing was all that surprising, but mm-hmm. I was, you know, everything seemed to happen at, uh, at either at slightly before or slightly after the time I expected it to, and so it really kept me engaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it made, you know, like all of the interactions between um, James McAvoy and his and uh, his therapist, like so tense. I'm like, is he going to kill her? Is he going to kill her now? Yeah. He's not going to kill her. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Um, and, you know, it eventually does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. that tension builds, you know, both subtly and in fits and starts. And I just, you know, I it was the first film since Unbreakable that I was like, oh, like, you have complete control of, about how I feel. Yeah. You know, I remember one of the things, like, when I was, you know, taking film classes, you know, like, the, the, idea, the, the concept was that, like, the, you know, how do you define a screenplay? A screenplay is a tool for manipulating the uh, feelings of your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like, from the beginning to the end of Split, I was like, yes, I will I will ride your train. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, some filmmakers benefit from restrictions. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and Shyamalan, uh, you know, in some of the early movies, he, he puts restrictions on himself mm-hmm. uh, in in ways that he seems to benefit from. And and those include restrictions about about camera movement, uh, that he's not going to indulge in all the pyrotechnics that a Michael Bay is going to indulge in. He's really just going to use these these simpler, more purposeful movements. And then, and then in the middle of his career, he was making big budget things, uh, and you know, like the 3D that was sort of added to Last Airbender. Um, and, and it just feels like this is a filmmaker who needs some parameters yeah. to work with and to, uh, cause he's creative. It, it actually gets his creativity going. It seems yeah. when he's working with it, with a tighter, um, set of limits. And, and I think in glass and in split, um, he's, he's gone back to being a filmmaker who's working within limits. See it. You'll see it's, it's, you know, it's a superhero movie um, that is specifically not going to have 
the big splashy fight scenes that we expect mm. from Marvel superhero films. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and people have criticized it because, you know, the characters, it leads you to think that there's going to be a big climactic scene, you know, in this skyscraper. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you do get a climactic scene, but it's not, it doesn't unfold the way you expect it to unfold. It's much more understated, much more restrained. Mm. And for all that, it's so much better. It's much yeah. Better. Yeah, I think I've heard in interviews as uh, Glass was coming out that he he admitted that those big budget films are not his his strength. Yeah. Um, just as you're saying that he he did say, you know, I have to work on this smaller level and it and it helps him tell better stories. And, yeah, and I think for me, like there's I think there's I mean, I don't have like the the, the breadth, I think, that, that you both have in terms of film, but there's only a couple people that I um think can really handle like the total infinite possibilities of a mm. like an unfinished film one of them which is is Baz Luhrmann because I and it's mainly because mm-hmm. of like Moulin Rouge and Romeo plus Juliet it's like you can do whatever you want I mean you know like you can f- make the Moulin Rouge like a giant floating glittering <laughs> uh you know windmill and have like people flip through it and like it, it somehow he's able to manage all that mm-hmm. um and that's also one of the things I liked about uh, the Spider-Verse film, which we don't have to linger on, but it was like, all right, so we're going to have like seven origin stories. We're going to have every, like, you know, yeah. many, as, as many versions of Spider-Man as we can cram into a film. Um, and we're going to like have, you know, crazy dynamic shots all over the place. Um, you know, it's even like, I, I think too about like um, a lot of like Yash Chopra's classic or like modern classic Hindi films where he'll have dance numbers that go from like India to Egypt to the Swiss <laughs> Alps, you know, and it's like, cause you can literally move the camera anywhere. Yeah, right, right. Um, and it, it takes like a particular kind of um, imagination, I mm-hmm. think. I mean, to be able to do that and do it well. I mean, Eli and I, I mean, the thing I, I say colloquial is like, I call it like the Green Lantern problem because like Green Lantern as a superhero has the ability to create anything that his mind can conceive of. That's what the the, the ring of the Lantern Corps does to him. And there have been like almost no good Green Lantern comic books and, and certainly no good Green Lantern movies because I think when you have infinite possibility it takes it just takes a really long time and a particular kind of talent to be able to manage that and make that well mm-hmm. yeah uh, Moulin Rouge I, I think is uh, um, I, 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 I think I think parts of it are a total mess yeah uh, but I, I forgive everything with the come what may Mm. At the end, mm. um, yeah, and, and I show that scene in class many times, and and I always feel myself, you know, on the edge of tearing up yeah. uh, when I show it. It's like that scene always works. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so so the movie can be filled with you know mistakes and things that 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 don't work, and I think it is filled with things that don't work. But that scene works so well that I forgive it all. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if. Um... I mean, it, it, like, say, the opening of Romeo and Juliet, uh, and I don't know if you guys have seen his show, uh, I think it's The Get Out on Netflix, um, that he, he only directed the first two episodes, which are definitely better than the rest. But just the way, how fast he cuts, but the variety mm-hmm. of shots he uses yeah. in his films, slow motion, fast motion, um camera moving a lot like i just don't know how he conceives of that and puts it together like to be um thoughtful enough to get all those shots and then how to combine them um is always amazing for me and also the way that he 
bounces back and forth um, and kind of pits together sort of like fun moments and very heartfelt moments. Um, and the contrast between those, I think, is, is always really powerful in his films that he can... He's one of the few filmmakers that can switch between those tones so quickly, and it works for the most yeah. for me for the most part. Yeah, I, I think I think one of his techniques when he's editing very very fast, uh, mm. he he does he does like to put things in the dead center of the frame, mm. uh, and that that sort of helps so your eye doesn't have to be searching oh, all yeah. of yeah really widescreen frame that's a good point. Uh, and, and the scene i'm thinking of specifically is is the, the um in the climax of of moulin rouge as the duke is walking up the center of the aisle yeah. and he's he's gonna kill them and he like mm. picks up the gun and walks down um uh, and sometimes i'll show that in class as an example of a filmmaker who's controlling exactly where your eye uh is looking uh, and it's cut really fast, but it's just center, 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 yeah. center. And then right at the key moment, right before he gets punched, your eye jumps all the way to the right-hand side of the screen, and then it moves, I think, all the way to the left, and then the punch comes. So it's mm. it's, it's almost this little extra bit of energy right as that, that turning point hits. Wow. That gives me even more appreciation <laughs> of what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Take a look. Take a look at the bit where he's uh, he's he, where, where the Duke is picking up the gun and and walking towards the stage. Hmm. Um, not to dwell on on Shyamalan, but I think not just him, but this sort of classical thing of like complete control um, over your frame and what you're showing. Uh, and and I think at one point you talk about. The, the sort of concept of cutting in the camera with long takes. And mm-hmm. I've always been a fan of long takes and we've sort of touched on that. But I think sometimes, you know, like let's say sort of at the end of the year, you know, when sort of a, a lot of the films are coming out that you should pay more attention to in some ways, or um, at least in my life with kids now, I am catching up with by the end of the year that I have to, have to see these. Um, there is a difference I see in you know, the films that I really appreciate and I can tell there's more care put into them is that filmmakers are willing to stay on their shots longer um, and have a little bit longer takes. And I think Shyamalan is one of those people, at least early in his career, that was um, not afraid to let those shots last longer. Um, And uh, like Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, is still really carrying that forward. Um, in the way he makes films, that mm-hmm. they're okay kind of letting you rest there in that moment a little bit more. And that feels sort of more classical to me, but not like dry or something. Um, yeah. Because I think when modern films are cutting faster, they're, they're trying to hide something, um, mm-hmm. a lack of control or quality in, in, what the, in their filmmaking. Um, that they did, the thought that they didn't put into it. So I, I don't know. It's not always something. It's like I can feel it more when I'm watching it that there's more care that went into what they're trying to show me. If that makes sense, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in the book, I, I talk about it in with 1940s uh, cinema as examples, uh, and so um, and I divide the filmmakers into three categories um though of course there's going to be some overlapping 
but you have some filmmakers who just like to shoot a lot of footage. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just want a ton of coverage. Yeah. Uh, and Frank Capra and George Stevens uh, were really the two famous examples hmm. uh, of this. And George Stevens would just shoot so many different angles. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and it wasn't, on the one hand, it's, um, like this is a filmmaker who, who doesn't have the movie in his mind Hmm. when he's shooting it, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean he's careless. It's just, he's very careful in the editing room, Hmm. uh, uh, about, about which of these angles will be put together, Hmm. uh, to make the film. Uh, uh, and then you've got, you've got the cutting in the camera people, who make movies that do have editing, uh, but they planned all of the cuts ahead of time. So they only shoot the footage that they need and it can only be cut together one way. Uh, and Hitchcock liked to present himself as being uh, the master of cutting in the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are some scholars who say that, you know, maybe he exaggerated the extent to which he right. cut it, right. uh, but, but it's usually associated with, with Hitchcock. Uh, uh, and then you've got the long take filmmakers, um, and Wells and, and Weiler, uh, mm-hmm. with the examples of that. Um, but also, also Cukor, um, and, and eventually Hitchcock, uh, would experiment right. long take filmmakers. Uh, and, and I do have a bias towards the filmmakers in category two and category three. Uh, I, I tend to be biased towards filmmakers who have the movie in their minds mm-hmm. and, and then they, uh, and then they shoot it and then they cut it together and there's the movie. Um, but, but that's, th- that might just be an aesthetic bias on my part. I mean, of mm-hmm. course, Capra and Stevens made, made terrific films yeah. also. Uh, um, yeah, I'm really with you. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not an expert by any means, but um, from having shot some of our films, I would lean more towards I like to have it all planned in camera. Um, mm-hmm. and, and some of that more at my level is, you know, we don't have a lot of time to get lots of coverage um, mm-hmm. and or budget um, to be able to do that. But even so, when I think that I'm really well planned, getting into the editing stage, there's been many times where um, something has to change or is sort of rebuilt, you know, in the editing process. Um, And sometimes with, you know, surprisingly good results um, that I didn't know were there, but I've had to sort of let that concept go and be okay with, you you know, usually I'm actually thinking like, I probably didn't get it the way that it is (laughs) in my head. Um, And so I know I'm going to have to do some, try to do some editing magic to make it work in the end. So, uh, yeah, I, I try not to be too hard on that concept. We, yeah. and we, um, like we consult with some folks about making projects. Like some mm-hmm. people talk to us about either making stuff for them or helping them to make stuff. Um, and in general we're Eli and I are, I don't know, are kind of like grumpy old folks and they're like, <laughs> that's going to be a lot of work. Are you like, you know, cause yeah. I, I mean, I think about it in terms of like, I, um, uh, swimming was really big at my high school. Um, so, we talked a lot about like the metaphors in swimming. So like there's like mm. dry land work, which is, you know, anything that's not in the pool. And, and there's a lot of like strength training and other sort of exercise that you do this in dry land. And then sort of swimming is sort of the wet stuff. Um, and when I say like to folks, I'm like, 
the, the, the what's going to make you a good film or project or presentation is a whole lot of dryland work. Like you need to to be a writer and make hard choices about what's going to be in here, what's it going to mm-hmm. look like, and you know do draft after draft so you, so you have a plan before you sit down with your camera and do stuff. And we were just um, talking with this uh, young ska punk band the other day. <laughs> we're going to be making a music video for them, um, and uh, you know we probably talked for like two two and a half hours. Um, and they like they you know they're like yeah we'll like shoot this and then you know I'm like yeah no no, no. like like <laughs> we need to know what what do you exactly what do you want it to look want. like who do you want to be in the frame like what story do you want to tell what things do you want to you know what emotions do you want to convey and we can build a, either a storyboard or a plan out that way but um, in in projects like that or other projects where we've done on our own they always turn out better when we have a, a you know a really solid plan about. What you know, like mm-hmm. to have the editing plan for the camera, right? Um, you know, and like you know, we of course can't usually do things like studios where like we'll just go back and shoot it again, or we'll do mm-hmm. it in ADR, or all these other options. You know, we have yeah. uh, a point to shoot, so that's part of it. But I also think, um, I don't know, I I when when I sit and look at uh, this one standard that I use is like 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 what are the amount of beats per shot? Mm-hmm. Like if I sit and I watch a shot, regardless of how long it is, and there's like a, it's really dense. There's a lot of things that happen. In it. There's a lot of emotional beats that happen. Those are all taken care of well. Mm-hmm. It like I can, I feel the planning. Like I feel how they how they you know orchestrated the people and work with the actors and coach them to be able to get these beats to happen in the single shot um, because you have to right. You you mm-hmm. can't. Um, you know, if it's a single shot, you can't go back and adjust the timing or the intonation or the angle or all that stuff in post. You're stuck with one single one. And it always just, it always stands out as being um, more impressive to me. Hmm. But I'm a big planner, so I like appreciate that element of the storytelling. <laughs> right. Though I'll, I'll, I'll just add, uh, there are some great filmmakers, you, you know, who, who cut really, really fast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Making, uh, you know, those Paul Greengrass movies. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, those those just seem to be like the editing of those. You know, can we get away with this shot if it's 22 frames? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, how about 17 frames? Uh, and they just seem like all of them are edited in some sense perfectly. Mm-hmm. Like if you took one more frame away, you'd lose it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and they, they, they're trying to get it to that absolute tightest possible form yeah i mean certainly like when i was entering film school at the end of uh end of the 90s um that was sort of what i thought was amazing at that time artsy um yeah yeah it was all this this new fast cutting and things like that that was going into it and then it became quite standard you know once you Mm -hmm. see it in action movies everywhere um became much more normalized but so i may be Yes, I, I appreciate those things now, I think, still, but I sort of have regressed into trying well, yeah, to be more thoughtful. Even about so, like, I mean, Goodfellas is like one of my favorite films. It was one of the first films that I, I saw that had like an arty quality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I love those, like, you know. Fast sequences. Yes, like when he's a like, cut. Like, I mean, like, yeah. the thing that I remember most, like, when they're in the prison and they're cooking, and there's like, this is like a, a like a. A half second close up on like them cooking garlic mm-hmm. in the pan, right? You know, like super yep. close up. You know, I mean, like like Sizzling that it, image yeah. is like mm-hmm. burned in my mind. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and I, I didn't even you know at the point I didn't even know like you're not supposed to like break shot scale like that. Yeah. Um. But there's just you know it was like the the moving to all those different pieces mm-hmm. that um you know in quick succession that you know I think was done to really great effect. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want to say that, that Scorsese, I've read an interview with him. I, I want, I'm not certain of this, but I think I've read an interview with him where he's praising a, sh- a cut in Giant, which is directed mm-hmm. by George Stevens, huh. uh, where the camera is really far away and a character, I, I think it's Mercedes McCambridge is playing the character, is, is on a horse and then she like hits the horse with her spurs and then it just cuts into the into this big close up mm-hmm. and, and it breaks the rule like you're not supposed to cut that close from that far, mm-hmm. away. far away um but it's so much more powerful uh, because they they broke yeah. the rule so may, maybe maybe he was thinking of that when 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 they did the the garlic cut <laughs> Um, so sort of speaking of things like that, you, you've mentioned a few films along the way today, but what would be, um, as we sort of wrap up, like if people were to go back and see some of these techniques they might see in modern film that seem kind of normal, but see some of the origins of them or see them used really well um, some of, for some of the first times, what other films would you sort of suggest that people go back and watch? Yeah, uh, I mean, certainly Sunrise. Uh, right. Sunrise influenced mm. uh, film style uh, for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that's one that I think is pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Ford, who later said he didn't like camera movement, mm. uh, early in his career was very much imitating Sunrise. Mm. So if you watch a film that he made called Four Sons, from 1928, another silent film, hmm. um, you'll, you'll notice that it's very much in the style uh, of Sunrise. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so certainly um, anything by Murnau uh, would be hmm. worth watching if you're interested in looking at camera movement, but also for lighting. Um, uh, you know, Hitchcock and Wells uh, are two other uh, crucial filmmakers uh, when it comes uh, to camera movement. Um, I mean, Hitchcock, you can pick pretty much anything. Um, yeah. Wells, of course, Citizen Kane, but The Magnificent Ambersons uh, also uh, is really remarkable. And I think there's a new uh, criterion of uh, The Magnificent Ambersons, oh, yeah. uh, I believe, uh, that would very much be worth uh, watching. Um, of course, Touch of Evil, uh, speaking of Wells. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also a fan of, of uh, Preminger. Okay. Uh, um, and a couple of my favorite examples from the book are from, from Preminger movies. Um, yeah, I, I describe a two and a half minute scene in a movie called where the sidewalk ends, uh, which, which I think is a pretty, um, interesting shot. Uh, Bonjour Tristesse also by Preminger. Um, that'd be another one, uh, worth watching. Uh, and how about, how about some Lubitsch films? Yeah. Um, yeah. One one of the examples one of the examples I give in the book is from uh, Design for Living. Uh, but if I had to pick one Lubitsch film to watch, I would watch Trouble in Paradise. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, Lubitsch always struck me as feeling very modern too, for when yeah. those those films were out. Um, yeah. I think that's that's a great place to start. Great list um, to do it. And uh, I don't know if Jeremy has any other things you want to bring up, but I know we need to bring you back to talk about uh, noir films because yeah. we didn't get around to that. Um, mm-hmm. And we could probably talk about that for a while. Yeah. But 
um, I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts on that more. But. I mean, I did, uh, I had a sort of, um, with all this discussion of classical Hollywood, I had a somewhat related, somewhat off-the-wall question, um, mm-hmm. which was uh, the shape of water. Um, yeah. We liked it, yeah. um, but I did not think uh, it was like movie of the year Quali- like kind of film, um, uh, and I I often felt like there was something that I was missing. I mean, it's like cool, you know, Russians, fish sex, you know, all like all, all the big stuff. Um, but there, but the, because it's over a theater, and because I kept going back to that sort of reference to like the classical cinema, I felt like it was like almost like it was speaking to a different generation, or um, it was it was appealing to something that I. That wasn't resonating with me, and I was wondering if, because you had such experience with classical cinema, it had um, like the kind of movie of the year resonance with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I did like the film. Uh, I, I liked it a lot. I, I remember thinking about one minute in, this is made by a filmmaker. <laughs> Uh, yeah. you know, which, which I, I don't say about every film, even though I suppose literally it's, it would be true, but, <laughs> right. um, but that one, I just said, this is made by a filmmaker. This is, this is made by someone who's thinking about what color should the wallpaper be, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, should the camera be moving? If so, how fast should it be moving? What music should be playing right about yeah. now? I just felt that this, this was made by someone who wants to tell a story visually um, the story, uh, uh, I did think it was delightfully weird. I, I must say I, my tastes are rather tame. There's a reason I study Hollywood films. So I, <laughs> I did find the film a little R rated, uh, for, for my mm-hmm. tame taste. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, uh, but I was won over by, by the film, uh, when, when, uh, she started dancing, yeah. uh, fish. Uh, um, I, I, I think, before then, I said, oh, this is pretty good. I'm not sold on it. And when she started dancing with the fish, I said, yes, okay, you've got me. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so I was, I was, uh, um, uh, I, I, I guess I was, I, I was happy that it won Best Picture in part because I, I had, on a previous podcast, I had predicted <laughs> that it was, <laughs> nice. so I was, I was able to get that prediction uh, correct. Ooh. Um, but there, there were other films that I was also pulling for uh, that year. Can I ask um, you a little bit about that dance, though? So when I um, when I saw it, the the first film that came to my mind was uh, Pennies from Heaven. You know, okay. the like it's mm-hmm. like a it's like a parody, and I recognize that it's like that Pennies from Heaven is it is like a, a parody. I mean, it it uses as its base, you know, this classical film kind of story like the rags to riches story but sort of inverts it um i was wondering if like there were um there were other sort of classical films that 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 sort of breakout positive dance number that you think sort of comes from or you know like echoes yeah i i i i don't think i can i don't think i can think of them off off the top of my head um you know, I I, I, I I mentioned before a dance number from uh, uh, the bandwagon. Yeah. Um, uh, and and there is this, uh, yeah, there is a wonderful scene. Um, and I just want to confirm in my mind that I'm thinking of the right movie. <laughs> uh, but I, I, it's with Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse, and they're walking through the park. 
and you and they haven't fallen in love with love with each other yet but you know they're about to <laughs> you know it's going to happen really really soon and then they're walking through a park and they see a bunch of people dancing and they're you know mm-hmm. there's music playing and people are dancing and you think they're going to join them but instead they walk through the crowd and they don't start dancing yet mm-hmm. and then they get to an empty part of the park mm-hmm. and then they start dancing and it's just wonderful mm-hmm. it's just beautiful um, so if you ask me to think of like one, you know, incredibly romantic dance, uh, number, mm-hmm. that's probably the best one I think of. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. I, I, I hope I've, I hope I've, I've been accurate. Uh, I, I, now I'm, now I feel like I need to go back and like double check that, uh, I've been describing these scenes accurately and I've been naming the movies correctly. Uh, but but I, I I hope that ninety percent of what I've said today is accurate. Yeah, it's it's all it's all movie magic. Yeah, yeah. okay. It's all about the moment that you remember. That's good. yeah, that's okay. Um, so th- thanks so much for talking yeah. with us, Patrick. Um, we will have to have you back again because there's a lot more to talk about. But uh, thanks for spending this hour with us. Yeah, this was really fascinating. Thanks. Um, all right. Thank and I can. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, I can honestly say that, like, I mean, I I read. Um, where you talk about the idea of like when you first introduced the idea of semi-subjective in the book. Um, but I didn't really grasp its significance until we talked about it today. So like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like very thankful for that. Cause it's mm-hmm. allowing me to, I, it, it's just like a, a really um, very clear and descriptive term for a lot of um, experiences I've had as a film watcher that I haven't had a good um, thing, a good way of describing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, and we've mentioned like Scorsese movies and Spike Lee movies and, and I, I think they're filled with semi-subjective shots. Nice. Thanks for talking with us. All right. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for listening. This has been Extra Textual. Extra Textual.